Hi there. I promised to take you to my chat with Rex Miller shortly, but I wanted to share some big news and offer you a gift from the Imagine a Place team for listening in. This week, we launched our fourth Imagine a Place journal with six new stories on the power of courage and optimism when it comes to a life in design. The imagery is beautiful, but the stories, wow, the stories capture some amazing people and places that have so much goodness. I'm so proud to share them on Imagine a Place. So here's how you can get a copy and join the Imagine a Place community. Check out the show notes. You'll see a link where you can sign up and we'll send you a free copy of the fourth annual Imagine a Place journal. And I promise, if you like our podcast, you will love the journal. Okay, on to the show. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. Some people just have the skill of decoding the world around us, almost as if all the complexity that stands in the way of progress sort of melts away when you speak with them. Well, I've known Rex Miller for some time, and that has been my experience, whether I'm reading his books, watching his videos, or chatting one-on-one. And I want you to have that experience too. Rex is a well-accomplished author, he's a big thinker, and I'm really excited to host him today. So here it is. We talk about what's changing in the world, we talk about leadership, but you'll wanna stick around till the end for two reasons. First off, I'll be giving you a promo code for a free digital copy of his latest work, Strategy and Rebuilding, The Principles to Building Post-Traumatic Growth. We talk about this book on this episode It's a $35 value, and we're making that available for the first 200 downloads for free. Secondly, Rex dishes out some awesome advice, and he gives us some simple actions that we can put into play right now that will help you get to a place of clarity and growth. Yeah, I'm writing a blog this morning for the Association for Christian Schools International on new research on burnout and uh, how to build a strategy beyond resilience. You know, how to, how to create a strategy for flourishing. Oh, this is where you got into. So in Clubhouse, I heard you mention uh, Anti-Fragile by Nassim Taleb. I don't like the word, but yes, that's the concept. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't love the word either. But I, uh, I got the book only because a friend recommended it. It's some pretty heavy reading. It's not like it is. Uh, he he's <laughs> it, yeah. He gets into these things like convexity and and uh, um, it it's basically looking at uh, how something responds to disruption and mm. the level of fragility. And and the basic concept is that there are you're either fragile robust, resilient, or anti-fragile. Now he doesn't, doesn't really address resilience and resilience and robustness probably would be similar in his framework. Examples of, of uh, anti-fragile are your muscles. You know, you, you stress them mm. and they get stronger. That's a good point. And then the, the 
the one of the big ahas early in this story is the the concept that resiliency doesn't really matter. That's not enough anymore, right? Because you don't want to come out of something and just be the same. You want to come out different, better, stronger, right? So I'm starting to play with Seligman's word flourish. You know, how do we flourish through these transitions? Mm. Every time we speak, I feel like there's a there's a book in your head that's that, <laughs> that's getting ready to get on paper. It's almost like you know you've you've always got something brewing. Uh, you've got. I wish I had the time for it, but yeah. You know, I uh, it was funny I, when I was speaking with your assistant before the uh, the podcast. She said, you know what you know what might Rex need in order to prepare for this interview. I thought about it for about three seconds, and I was like, okay. Rex has been preparing for this interview for the last 10 years. <laughs> I think he's good. Yeah, that's yeah, a good, um, good point. I want to get into a, a lot of things. I, I, building great teams, uh, your body's data. I want to get into post-traumatic growth. There's, there's a ton of things I'd, I'd love to get into in this podcast. So, yeah, you know, I, I'd love to just start with what is fascinating you today in terms of data and insights, because I know you're a data junkie. Well, the the data that that's fascinating me is the it, it's kind of the the neglect of the data. <laughs> that's what's fascinating huh. me is that we're not paying attention to it. You know, we we're seeing just the rising of mental health issues everywhere. Uh, here here's here's a piece of data. Last year there were about 130 people banned from flights. Well, already this year, there are 1,300. Um, and so what we're finding is that the trauma that we knew, you know, prior to the pandemic, it was estimated about 8% of the work population had some form of post-traumatic stress. Now it's estimated to be somewhere around 40%. Well, wow. what that means is that the triggering effect, you know, when, when you've got post-traumatic stress, now the difference between what we're talking about in terms of post-traumatic stress and what we typically think about is what's called level one is what we think of soldiers coming back from, you know, tragic uh, experiences or first responders or abuse, you know, those direct things that rewire the brain. And I've seen the brain scans of trauma. In fact, I had our whole family brain scanned by Dr. Amon's clinic in California. And we found that one of my kids had experienced trauma in high school. We knew it, uh, but we didn't know um, to what extent. And, and seeing it and seeing the brain pattern, it's distinct. And what it does, if you want to really describe what happens is that the memory gets lodged in the brain. And then when an event happens, it goes through this loop and it doesn't get separated. And what typically happens in the brain when you have a bad experience is you begin to separate the emotion from the narrative and then begin to be able to, to deal with it. Well, hmm. in trauma, there's no separation. You go back to that event as if it just happened to you. And that's why you see examples of, you know, soldiers in a restaurant hearing a car backfire and then duck. You know, it's, it's kind of like the brain just takes you back there. And, 
And that's why we see things triggering. Now, the difference in this kind of trauma, it's called level two trauma, is that under prolonged stress and stress fatigue, your brain begins to adapt itself to this perpetual fight or flight state. And so the story is different and it doesn't look the same as what we typically know, but it's the same default mode network in the brain, the loop. And mm. what we're finding is that as people come together uh, and, and another distinction in this particular mass disaster is that everybody has a different story. We, our lives were disrupted at different places under different conditions unlike a hurricane or a tornado that comes through where everybody kind of experienced together and we're all doing recovery together, you know, the mm -hmm. community comes together and we, we pull ourselves out of the debris and we begin rebuilding. This one was very individual and we were isolated from one another. Um, even more so because we couldn't touch each other, you know, after a mass disaster, I remember 1979 going down, to my wife's hometown in Mobile after Hurricane Frederick with about 50 guys from our church. And we were out there with chainsaws and moving brush around, cleaning up and finding everybody was connecting with others. And there was hugging and touching and talking. This one, we've all been in, isolated from one another. Right. Very unique kind of uh, mass disaster. And Usually, you know, a hurricane comes through, hits, and we recover. This has lasted a year, more than a year. I mean, how, how do we, you know, well, first, at, at a personal level, how do, we, how do we begin to kind of like understand this and then put ourselves in a best situation to kind of be anti-fragile? That's a great question, Doug, because, you know, I've worked on being anti-fragile since 2000. I mean, that was when my life just cratered after the dot-com. And, um, you know, I, I looked up 46 years old. I'm 195, six pounds, you know, 40, 40 pounds heavier than I am today. Um, stressed, not dealing with it well. And then that was almost, you know, we almost declared bankruptcy four or five times in the next four or five years, just piled up the debt and slow building back. And so having had that lesson and getting there just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I started finding that my recovery and, and so for your audience, most people don't know that you know, I wear a whoop strap. It's, it's a sports, uh, it, it's a, it's a biometric strap that looks at what I consider two primary measures, your resting heart rate and something called heart rate variability. That's kind of the new metric for resiliency and heart rate mm -hmm. variability is how agile is your heart? How quickly can it adapt to changing situations? So the higher the variability, the better. So for two straight weeks, I am uh, doing lots of Zoom calls. Um, and my I'm going to bed the way I always go to bed, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, get up at 6, 
same routine, no digital stimulation in the evening, doing all that, but I can't get any recovery. Uh, it's in mm. the red consistently for two weeks. At the end of the day, my routine is to go hit some tennis balls on the high school wall. And I'd go out there and I'd just be going through the motions wondering, okay, today's an exception. But after two weeks, that doesn't, it's not an exception. I actually thought my straps and I have an aura ring, a bio strap and a whoop that measures my body. So that's the data geek side that you were talking about. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm just pounding my head and I'm thinking the strap is broken. <laughs> that something's wrong. <laughs> you know, I didn't get the update in software. Then we took five days in a little town on a nice river about an hour away quaint little town with our family airbnb nine of us in this great little place i come back every single day since i have been in high recovery in fact this morning i was at 97 percent recovery that's unheard of for me so what what happened there i mean like what i needed a break what broke you just yeah. needed a break i needed a wow. break so we go to this little river the interesting thing is the way I recover. And so I, we use the Clifton strengths to help people understand their best strategy for recovery. Some people go into their head and need reflective time. Some people need some intimate social time. Some people need to be in an exciting group environment, you know, go out dancing or in a, in a you know, a very stimulating group experience. Uh, some need to just be active and get something done. My particular mode is getting into my head and being productive. That's my way of recovery. This hmm. little Airbnb on a river uh, had a tree house <laughs> on the property. And it was a well outfitted tree house, obviously for kids, but it had two benches. So in the morning for two hours, I'd go hang out in the treehouse by myself with my journal, just thinking and writing and, and, and not realizing. And the rest of the day was family time. And that was great too. When I came back, this magical thing happened. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting high recovery, not doing anything different in terms of my routine than I was before I needed a break. So the tendencies are, and the signs are this, going through the motions, feeling continually fatigued, um, not finding anything really exciting or stimulating that you want to do, uh, finding that your mind wanders, having brain fog in the morning, uh, your mind active all night, not getting a good night's sleep, finding yourself uh, reverting to uh, unhealthy coping behaviors in the evening, like comfort food, starchy food, things mm. with sugar in them, alcohol, taking sleep medication is a sign. Um, and then watching binge, uh, you know, one person I was coaching said, yeah, I get exhausted about three. We were talking about the fatigue that zoom creates that most people aren't aware of either the extra load of virtual meetings. Uh, and yeah, what, what is that? Like what, you know, I've, I've heard of that and I, I haven't had the details yet. Well, so here's the brain science. <laughs> uh, 
your brain is the highest energy consuming organ in your body. Hmm. On, on normal days, it's consuming 20 up to 30% of your calories. And so it, it consumes a lot. What we know is that cognitive load and emotional load uh, drain you or have the same effect as physical load of athletes. So for the last year, I've been measuring my uh, virtual sessions with my whoop strap and aura ring. And I know we can't pull it up for your audience, but I have an aura ring metric of a four hour workshop. What it does is it translates, uh, it tells you the calories of the activity and then it translates into walking equivalents, how many miles you walked. So in this four hour workshop, it said I burned 2,500 calories. That's insane. Wow. And it equated it as a, the equivalent of a 29.7 mile walk. Now, if you're, you know, we walk about Jeez. three miles, three miles an hour. So that's a 10, that's 10 hours of just walking <laughs> out there. Oh my. So why? Well, what happens is the additional strain on your brain of making sense of these little boxes and being on camera and being on all the time, your brain is consuming up to 50% of your calories. So almost double. And we've come up with a working equivalency. I was coaching somebody the other day and, and I like to ask people, how many hours did you work? I'm finding. And of course, this is a recent, I think Pew, Pew report and a Wellcoa report that people are actually working uh, up to 20% more than they were prior to the pandemic. Mm. So you add the additional work. This person said they were working 10 hours a day. And I said, well, so how many hours are you buying the camera virtual? He said about eight. And I just said, so my estimate for you is you worked an equivalent of an 18 hour day in terms of the strain on your body. And I said, do you start feeling your energy just leave you about three in the afternoon? He says every day. I said, hmm. okay, now you know why. And then I said, so how are you dealing with that? He said, well, I usually go home and I just plop and watch Netflix. I said, okay, <laughs> bad habit. Number one, that's the opposite of what you want to do. Um, you don't want to do two things. One is just sit and two to get your mind, uh, your eyes exposed to all that blue light, which is telling your body any, any screen, whether it's your iPad, your iPhone or a TV screen or a computer, that blue light tells your body it's noontime, right? What you're doing is filling your body full of cortisol peak time. It takes about two hours for when you turn it off for your body to, for the night shift to come in the melatonin crowd and for the cortisol to reside in the melatonin to come up to prepare your body. So you've already compromised your sleep quality by doing that. And uh, the way we address it with my wife and I, is we wear these funny looking orange glasses, they're called blue blockers. And oh. they, and and some people say, well, I, I put the night shade on on the screen. And I say, that's not enough. That won't do it for you. You need either to turn it off. We have another habit that we adopted 
from somebody I listen to a lot by the name of Brian Johnson called a digital sunset, where we just turn everything off. I love that. A digital sunset. Digital sunset. Yeah. But these are the new habits of the world that, I mean, to build resiliency or to flourish, we have to discipline new disciplines and the disciplines have to be to limit our exposure to things that amp up our cortisol, uh, things that shut down our immune system, like comfort food. Um, and, and then build positive habits in replace of those. Yeah. I'd love to tell you also touched on, it's not, it's not enough to just go get a break or go take a three-day vacation. You have to know which kind recharges the batteries. You know, everybody's kind of a little different in terms of what gives you that recovery. And I know you mentioned this, uh, the the Clifton Strengths Finder. Is it Strengths Finder? Yeah. Well, it's it's now called the Clifton Strengths. So they've rebranded it. But yes, it's okay. the Strengths Finder. Is there, a, you know, what else would give us, if we don't have access to that, indication of, you know, how you best recharge? Is there a little trick to that or is it just kind of self-discovery? Well, it's easy, easy to do. Just write a list, you know, take, take a sheet of paper, put a line down the vertically, the center of it on one side, put, uh, engaged and, and drain or, or drain or gain, you know, the activities that you just pump you up and energize you and write them down and Mm -hmm. go a little bit deeper. Why does this energize me? Why does a meal with three or four people energize me? What is it that I'm getting out of that? Or why does getting alone with a book or taking a walk, why does that energize me? The opposite side is what drains me and why? And, and just mm-hmm. ask those questions, make a list, be reflective of it. And it's real easy. Do less of the stuff that drains you, do more of the stuff that energizes you. <laughs> Yeah, I guess when you say it that way, uh, but I, I like that. It sometimes it's just uh, taking those simple steps and and uh, and just being reminded to do that. Um, all right, I'd like to get into uh, this post traumatic growth that we kind of uh, discussed at the beginning a little bit. Um, you put together kind of a guidebook to help um, to help people think about their businesses, right? And what post traumatic growth might mean for them? Are they prepared for it? Um, can you can you give us maybe some of the the nuggets out of that book and then how they might uh, engage with that? Sure. It, it's called Strategy in Rebuilding. And I partnered with Dr. Jernigan uh, early on in this, uh, back in March. You know, I, have, I was on spring break when the first news of the virus was coming through in March of 2020. I didn't pay much attention to it. I was on break and it didn't sound like a big deal at the time. And then within three weeks, 100% of my business canceled. So I kind of took it, took it seriously. Hmm. But what I started seeing as the industry started ramping up for, um, you know, how to make the office safe, and coming up with crazy ideas like plexiglass and all this stuff. I was looking at it through the lens of mental health. And I had just finished a book that was released in March for education called Whole. 
and what teachers need to help students thrive. And it was specifically looking at the caregiver's dilemma. You know, the caregiver, whether it's a teacher or first responder, is that others come first. The logic behind that is that if others come first, then I come last. And we were seeing the effects of this challenge in education big time. So we had done all this research on well-being and restoring people to health in education. March, it comes out March 15 of 2020. Then I go straight back in to Dr. Jernigan and say, help me understand what's going on here from a mental health standpoint and what we need to prepare for. And so I pivoted quickly. What I found, however, is that most of my clients were in denial for months. Uh, some, some of my clients thought it was a conspiracy. <laughs> um, and so then it's, then it's paranoid anger uh, that, that it is a conspiracy and, and, and just getting people to process through so that they could be show up and then leaders coming in and telling their people to do one thing, but not walking the talk. So you can't talk about, um, taking care of yourself if you're not taking care of yourself first. Then we go into rebuilding trust with your workforce. Uh, there's been a fundamental break of trust. You know, we basically look at our companies as being able to protect, protect us and us being able to take care of our families and have a secure future. And that was broken, not by any fault of anybody. But it's still that confidence that in the back of your mind, and what we're finding statistically are the numbers of people that are considering as soon as they can to go work for another company. We're already starting to see lots of, even in our industry, we're seeing people shifting around and moving to other companies. And we're gonna see more of that as people are looking for more secure, more meaningful places, more human places to work. Yeah, I, I agree. There's, there's been, there's been a pause where people are, are questioning things they wouldn't have questioned in the past. Yeah, and because of the emotional letdown, we're going to have to become so good at uh, psychological change management, not logistical change mm. management. You know, which is Cotter's eight steps. That's logistical change management. We need to add a dimension that we have in the workbook called. Uh, the mind shift process or the right brain side of change. So all those eight elements that Cotter talks about, you know, having, having the burning platform, in other words, why we have to change, having a clear, compelling vision, that's number two, uh, having advocates, having clear communication, uh, having first easy steps, and quick wins, all of that has to be greater than people's perceived loss or what we call the cost of change. And so we're not managing that. And, and that's why we get resistance to change because we haven't managed what people feel they're giving up or losing, mm. even if it's a better environment, even if it's some tremendously better environment, we we have to understand the psychological side of what people go through when we ask them to make 
dramatic changes. So, as, you know, you mentioned psychological change management being more important at this moment than logistical change management. Do, do, does this mean the nature of our leaders change? So, for instance, if you're, if you're considering business leadership or, you know, the kinds of people you look for or the strengths they have as leaders, has that, has that profile changed? Or is it the same profile and it's just maybe we weren't looking for it in the past? Well, I think we have a challenge. Uh, Gallup says that 82% of managers are what we call task-oriented managers. They do a good job telling you what to do, uh, troubleshooting, and then following up and holding you accountable. That worked when you could see people daily, you know, because you had several touch points with them. The other percent, the 18% are naturally wired to be what, what we call the soft skill managers, developmental coaching. So that's one disconnect that we've got in this new world. And the, the other disconnect is that most leaders are really good at two of the three kinds of problems we face. One are the tactical problems where you bring in an expert and it's a matter of the right solution and good execution. Those are called tactical. The second is what we call the strategic leader, the person who can see down the road and then is really good at casting the vision, working on setting the priorities and creating alignment. So most leaders are really good at that the kind of leadership style that Ronald Heifetz talked about um, is that we're not good at is what's called adaptive leadership or transformational leadership or the leadership of culture change. And that's when we reach a problem, I like to define it when you come to the end of what's working, but have no clue of, of what the solution is then that requires what we call the discovery mindset. So think of it as an, an application of design thinking. You know, it's, we have to go discover our way. And by the way, it's not the leaders who need to discover, it's us collectively. We're just not wired to do that. We bring experts in, the experts do their research, they tell us what to do, we do it, and then it doesn't work, and then we hire new experts. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Um, okay, I don't want to let this conversation get away without asking a really uh, you know, specific question here for our guests, something that they can take home, put in their pockets, some advice they can keep with them. So let's put yourself in the shoes of somebody who is maybe, let's say, new in this career in architecture, construction, design, whatever it might be. Uh, furniture, or maybe somebody who's who maybe feels a little lost in their career, what is some big advice you would have for them? Play to your strengths and find a purpose. The big shift in my business has been the one-on-one -on -one coaching this year. Over 100 people. A lot of them mm. are in those young stages, either designers, project managers, or whatever. And they're feeling lost right now because what's the future going to look like? 
So we start with their strengths and you can use either the Clifton strengths or there's a free assessment from the University of Pennsylvania called Virtues in Action. And the first thing we do is say, uh, let's look at what you look like at your best. Let's start there. Mm. And when I ask kids and I should ask you, what is your purpose? I haven't found anybody, nobody has given me a clear answer. So where we start is let's, let's agree on this, that we all have one common purpose and that's to become the best version of who we are. Now, the first thing we have to do, if, if that's something we can agree on, then we have to ask, well, who am I? The neat thing about the Clifton Strengths, it's is measuring what you naturally do best and enjoy most. And so it's a proxy for your natural strengths, who you, who you naturally are. And then the journey now becomes focusing on that as your metric versus some raise, getting satisfaction out of working mm -hmm. on becoming that best version of yourself. It has a physiological positive effect because you release dopamine and endorphins. It means that you learn faster. You, your work is naturally better. You get the extrinsic recognition that people see how good the work is. And so that is the starting point. Let's start there. Let's give you the things that nobody gave you in school, which is your success formula, the internal code whether you know you you feel nature gave it to you or or god gave it to you everybody's got this internal code of how i can be successful in this world maslow recognized it um, the stoics recognized it there's this inner sense the, the stoics called it your daimon uh, the romans called it your genius maslow said we all have this innate understanding of what our potential is so what we can become we must become if you're faith-based it's the image of god inside of you it, so i think there's a common place we can start and then don't worry about the outcome because it's the process it's the journey of becoming your best self that will lead you to the things that you naturally do best and enjoy most it will lead you to making your best contribution in this world and to those around you. It will lead you to psychological happiness or satisfaction. We start there. And what I found is most people don't have that as a starting point. Well, Rex, I can feel that radiating out of you. Just so you know, you've gotten there and I can feel that um, you're, you, you are doing such great work um and and i can tell it's the work of, of passion and uh i loved how you said to change the metric you know it's not how much money you're going to make or what kind of raise or promotion you're going to get when you start to change the metric and understand that internal code and it's about being the best version of yourself like that just really landed with me and uh the new way of kind of thinking about purpose I really appreciate um, the time you spent today. I'd love to know how do we find more of you, read more of you? What's the best way to find you right now on the web or otherwise? Yeah, I'm most active on LinkedIn. You know, you usually see a post 
you know, once a day or a couple times a week, at least. My website is rexmiller.com. The workbook that you're talking about, if you go to the products section, there's a hard copy version and a digital version. And, um, you know, if, if you do, if you, if anybody has their top five strengths and sends me those either by email or LinkedIn, we will send a free uh, breakout of your leadership archetype, a description of what that's like, and we'll get you on that journey. We call it the genius journey. Um, and that's a whole nother story too, that, that we were all once geniuses before school started and we all lost it. <laughs> and there's research, it's a, it's a NASA uh, assessment. So in a future, future session, we can talk about this whole recapturing that internal genius that you lost and we'll help you with that. Thank you, Rex Miller, for being so generous with your insights and your coaching. Now, I promised you that promo code, so here it is. Go to rexmiller.com and click on products. You'll see the digital copy of Strategy in Rebuilding. It's listed at $35. You can get that free using the code OFSFREE. All one word. Once again, OFSFREE. To make it easier on you, you can find the link to this site in our show notes. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at OFS.com backslash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.